All right. Well, hello, everyone. It's good to um, see you all. Sorry that I missed uh, last week. So, sounds like it was a really rich time. And it is interesting. I mean, as Melissa was saying, these are historic times. And I'm, I'm just reminded of how actually critical what we're talking about today is. I mean, I know we're all um, probably tired of politics, but it's my conviction that politics are significantly downstream from culture. And so uh, the work that we do in thinking about, you know, um, cultivating the good, the true and the beautiful in culture and making things that, that, that sort of embody that are, 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 I think, super critical and super relevant even to what we're seeing, uh, for example, you know, in politics. And so we're going to jump right in. Um, let me share screen and I've got a, I want to walk through some slides with you to kind of get, get you going. Um, today and then hopefully we'll have a good bit of time for uh, discussion. So, all right. So I thought I'd, I thought it would be fun first just to sort of tell you a little bit about how this book came about. Um, I, you know, I spent 16 years on staff with crew working with college students. And one of the questions that surfaced over and over over those years um, was this question, how do we have a conversation with the culture so that the gospel will get a fair hearing? And this was the question that really drove the book. And, and, and I'm writing it um, you know, in, in many ways for like my kids and my kids' kids, you know, they're, they're at college age, high school age, middle school age, and they're, they're having doubts and questions. And these are kids that have grown up in not only the church, but in a family that takes these things pretty seriously. And so, um, you know, that's sort of what's been going on. And so anyway, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I was teaching at a seminary in Texas and developing uh, some new degrees. And so we got to choose classes. And, and I, I said, hey, let's teach a class in cultural apologetics. And so, so we added that to the curriculum and then I assigned myself to teach it. And then I realized I had no idea what cultural apologetics is. It just sounded like something that ought to be important. And so like any educator, what I did was I Googled the phrase, what is cultural apologetics? Thought that'd be a good place to start to figure out what I'm supposed to teach on. And this was like six or seven years ago. So there wasn't much you know, out there, but this is the first thing you wouldn't find this now because there's been a ton of work in this. But when I Googled that six or seven years ago, um, this was the first link that I came across and it said cultural apologetics is applying apologetics to cultural issues and cultural trends and responding to questions that culture is posing. And I can remember looking at that and thinking, okay, this is good. This is, this is um, part of what cultural apologetics should be about. And this is the idea of resurrecting relevance, right? That it's, that it's relevant to the pressing questions of our age. But of course, you, you know, kept scrolling through Google there. And the next thing I came across was this definition. Cultural apologetics is working to transform the rhythms and practices of our culture to, to reflect the beauty and the desirability of Christ. So to show that Christianity is not only true, but lovely and desirable. Now this really resonated with me. I was mindful of, uh, you know, there's this quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn who says, in vain does one repeat what the heart does not find sweet. And I, I remember really resonating with this um, because it not just resurrects relevance, but I think resurrects hope. You know, we're, we're so beat down in this world. I mean, there's so many things to be discouraged about. Um, but as we help to create new cultural goods and rhythms and practices that reflect the truth, the goodness and the beauty of Christianity, um, I think we awaken culture or those in culture to, to the possibility of a better story. And um, so anyway, so here's what I did that first year. I had no idea what cultural apologetics is, but I, you know, since it's all about me as a professor, not really. But um, anyway, I had picked seven books that I was interested in on gospel, culture and apologetics. And we read them. And I used this class as kind of a research seminar for myself. 
I did that the second year, but I swapped out those seven books and put seven different books in. And I did this for about two or three years. And finally, you know, a couple years into it, I began to have sort of some convictions or an idea of at least what I mean by cultural apologetics. And so here's the definition that I arrive at in the book. Um, cultural apologetics is working to renew the Christian voice, the Christian conscience, and the Christian imagination so that Christianity will be seen as true, good, and beautiful. So this is the sort of working definition that I unpack in the book. And I guess this maps onto this image problem that we talked about last week. Remember, we talked about how the Christian voice is muted, and so the gospel doesn't get a fair hearing. The Christian conscience is muted, so um, you know nobody nobody thinks our ethic is lovely at all. And then, you know, lastly, the Christian imagination is muted, and so uh, you wrap all these things up uh, in, into a bow. And Christianity, to many people in our culture, is either unreasonable or undesirable or both. And that was the challenge. And that was what sort of led us to this New Begin question. You know, I'm glad you guys had an opportunity last week to explore New Begin and community and church. Um, I think this is the uh, very, in, the, you know, the ultimate, or well, it's the important question in a post-Christian nation, the, the kind of nation we find ourselves in, perhaps. You know, what would be involved in a genuine missionary encounter between the gospel and the whole way of thinking, perceiving, and living that we call modern Western culture? And so uh, this is kind of where we ended uh, last time. And then I, I described to you, this was two weeks ago, described to you our descent, how we arrived at this cultural moment that I'm calling disenchantment. And so, um, uh, yeah, let's see. Oh, no, not there. Sorry. I got to figure out what my slides are. So um, here's what I want to do today. And kind of picking up from where we were then. I want to do four things. I want to um, describe for you a model of reenchantment uh, as we look at ancient thinkers and even the Bible itself. I think we can, uh, I think we can have hints uh, of a of a way of thinking about reenchanting culture that actually might be um, uh, consistent with the way that reality actually is. So that's the first thing I want to do: is just make some observations about different thinkers and things we see in the Bible. Secondly, though, I want to share with uh, you how we might go about. I want to give you a prescriptive, hopeful sort of new, maybe here's something we can try to join with God, to join with each other in community by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually re-enchant the world. Third, I want to give you some really practical suggestions about ministry and some new metaphors to live by. Remember, we talked about the kind of metaphors, uh, what it feels like to live in a disenchanted age. And then lastly, I just want to leave you with some uh, further study, so some books that I would recommend. Okay, so with that, let's jump into this question of, um, you know, a, a new way forward, a fresh approach, approach to culture. Now, again, again, just to remind you the question, or one way I'm phrasing the question that we're after is, is there a story that's true to the way the world is and true to the way that the world ought to be, okay? And I think that um, we can find insight to answer that question as we look at the, the overarching story of scripture, as well as some thinkers who hail from a more ancient age. And so when you think of scripture, uh, you know, a lot of times when people say, well, what is the overarching story or the meta narrative of scripture? They'll say things like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And of course, that's a great way to understand the overarching story of scripture. My preferred way though, to understand the overarching story is with the metaphor of a home. Because if you think about it, the home, is, I mean, I think it's one of the closest metaphors for life. Every one of us lives in a home, right? It might not be the most ideal home, but we all live in a home. And even if we don't live in, in, a, in an ideal home, we have this vision or image of what an ideal home would be like. 
right? This will be the place where we're known and we know, where we're loved and we love, where we're present and with and approved, uh, where we flourish, right? And so um, if you think of the story of the Bible, though, I think you can understand it in terms of these four words, home, away, and home again. If you really think of the rhythm of the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter one and two, what is God doing? Well, he's creating a home. He creates a place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, he creates a people. Think of Genesis 1, 26, 27. You know, he creates them in his image. In the divine kind, he creates them, male and female. And then he gives his people a purpose. That's the thing about multiplying, uh, you know, and, and stewarding the earth. And so he creates a home. And it's basically the way things ought to be. There's deep beauty. There's deep order. There's deep abundance. And then, as you know, early on, Genesis 3, we become a way. And Adam and Eve, and the first humans, uh, decide to go their own way. And really, from Genesis 3 to the end of the story, it's a story of God pursuing us relentlessly to, in a sense, bring us home again, even in our case, to the home that we've never been in. And so I think this is a helpful way to understand um, the story of the Bible, home, away, and home again. And as it turns out, this is actually a helpful way to understand the rhythm of our lives. I mean, think of what you do every day. What do you do? You get up in the morning in your home, and then you go away. And you go to work, you go to school, whatever. You hang out with friends, you go exercise, only at the end of the day to come home again. And so if you think of the rhythm of your life, it's these four words, home, away, home again. And I think this is the, the story of scripture as well. Okay. Now, Let's continue. Let's look at Augustine. Augustine, you know, wrote the Confessions, one of a wonderful, one of the first spiritual autobiographies of the Western world. In the first book, chapter, uh, first paragraph, he says this famous quote here that you've probably heard before, where he says, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have, because you have us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And if you read the story of, uh, in the Confessions of, of his journey, um, Augustine believed or, or described his life in terms of wander from God, and then he had this turning point in his life, and then a return to God. And, you know, so you can read about this. So in, in book, uh, you know, early on, he lives this wild life. You could basically read it off a Hollywood tabloid, very driven to sex and to aesthetic beauty as a teenager. He has this moment, you can read about this in book three, where he's reading philosophy. And he says, for the first time, my heart was awakened to truth for the sake of truth. And then he says, and I knew he was reading Hortentius um, by Cicero. And he said, I knew that if it didn't mention the name of Christ, that it didn't have all the truth. So even there as a, a non-believing 18-year-old, he knew that that truth would be found in some way connected to Christ. Spends 10 years in this cult called Manichaeanism. Um, you know, he has all these intellectual objections to Christianity. They're whittled away one by one, as you read. By chapter 7, he's got one final objection, whether the concept of an immaterial substance, that is God, is coherent. Ambrose, this great preacher, removes that last doubt intellectually, but still he doesn't believe. And the reason why, if you read book 8, is he because he praised the lady chastity to give me chastity, but just not yet, right? He doesn't know how to change. He believes it's true. It's reasonable. He wants it, but he doesn't really want it, or he's not sure if he wants it because he doesn't know how to change. And then he has this moment. This is that turning point, book nine. He hears this voice in Latin, of course, tole lege, tole lege, which means pick up and read. He looks on the ledge. There's a Bible. He turns, he picks up the Bible, opens it up, and he turns to Romans 13, 13, and 14, which is basically this 
you know, as if it was the very words for Augustine, it says, it basically says, let us not behave, um, let us behave as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. And then it says, but rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will not think about, you will not uh, gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And so Augustine reads this, and his heart melts, and he bends his knee, and he has this, this, this moment, and he becomes a Christian. Of course, the rest is history. But from that experience of wander and return, Augustine began to believe that this is actually the uh, fabric of reality as a kind of ongoing return, uh, a story of wander and return. Everything is from God, and everything will return to God. So Exodus or Redditus, because we're going to be with the learned now, that's the Latin, but wander and return. All right, so let's fast forward. Aquinas, 13th century, if you're keeping score. So, uh, he lived from 1224 to 1274. But Aquinas too, like Augustine, thought that reality was a kind of ongoing story of wander and return. And so what he does in his massive theological work, it's huge, it's like four million words, um, he structures it in terms of the way he thinks reality is. And so you can see here's this quote, actually comes from the very first chapter in the Summa, where he talks about how he's going to structure this work of theology. He says his principal aim of this text is to convey the knowledge of God, not only as he is in himself, but also as the origin and end of all things, from God and to God, especially rational creatures. And then he says, accordingly, our exposition will proceed thusly. We will first discuss God, then the movement of rational creatures toward God, and third, Christ, who as human is the way to strive for God. And so he structures the Summa in terms of this wander and return. I mentioned last week, when we, or two weeks ago, when we were doing our question and answer, that there is this little essay by C.S. Lewis that unlocked Lewis for me. It's called Talking About Bicycles. If you're interested, you can find it in um, a little work called On Present Concerns. But there, I'll just, I, I won't go into detail, but again, he notices, notices these four stages that we go through with pretty much respect to everything, from unenchanted to enchanted to disenchanted. And then Lewis is encouraging us to move from that stage to re-enchantment, where in the case of the bike, we begin to enjoy it in creaturely response, okay, as gift. So as I'm doing the research, you know, swapping out books, thinking about these things, what I'm realizing is this pattern Wander and return. Exodus, Redditus. Home, away, home again. Always from God to God. And I began to think, given God's intentions for people, and given God's intentions for groups of people, culture, maybe we can think of culture and a cultural apologetic in the same way. And so here's the proposal. Here, you know, last week we did the wander away, or two weeks ago, sorry, we did the wandering away, right? And I gave you two steps. Uh, suppressing the truth of God and then emptying the world of the, the, the divine, the transcendent. And so the result was that we live in this disenchanted world. So now the more hopeful, the more proscriptive part, how can we join with God and each other and the power of the Holy Spirit to re-enchant the world? Well, I'm going to give you a hopeful prescription, uh, uh, you know, a hopeful uh, way to do this. So here we go, two steps. And again, I'm, I'm kind of flying through it, but uh, we can talk more about it if you want. Step one, Awakening desire. Why is this the first? Why why would this be the first step in joining with God and each other to reenchant the world? Well, as one philosopher puts it, part of the problem in presenting the faith is that our world deadens desire, and many people don't even know they are missing anything. And so we've got to reawaken. You see, disenchantment, 
actually redirects and channels our desires and longings toward the mundane. Um, there's a spell that has been cast. We're under a stupor. You know, as, as senior devil says to junior devil in the screw tape letters, your job is to fix their eyes on the stream of experience. And that's basically where we are. And so what is needed in many cases is this reawakening of this longing for that far off country, as Lewis puts it. Um, and there's at least three ways that I think we can join with God. And these are, these are the three ways that I unpack in the book that we can join with God to reawaken desires. Okay. I'm going to call them the way of the imagination, the way of reason, and the way of morality. And I'll just explain each of them briefly now. So the way of the imagination. One way that we can reawaken the religious impulse, I think, is actually through the imagination. Art, music, poetry, story. They can reawaken or awaken this desire uh, for transcendence by shocking people into engagement with reality. I was so struck watching the inauguration an hour ago, um, notice what we celebrate with. We celebrated with our storytellers, right? We had poets and we had musicians, the way of the imagination. And, and, it, and it's compelling, right? I can remember, um, and here's the thing. When we think about the way of the imagination and the aesthetic currency of our age, the initial stirring doesn't always have to be explicitly religious. So for me, for example, just a self-report, I can remember as a nine-year-old in the movie theater watching the original Star Wars, which is now Star Wars 4, New Hope, um, staring at those binary moons or binary, uh, yeah, moons, sunset um, with Luke, craving to live a life that mattered. There was something that, was, that God, I believe, was doing in my heart, this, this deep desire to live a life that matters but it was through Star Wars, right? For some today, it would be, you know, or I don't know, my wife, it would be watching Poldark. Maybe she loves, you know, watching the beauty. We're probably, probably we're English in another life or something because we love everything English. And so we love watching that and the beauty there just awakes something within us. For many people, it could be Harry Potter and, and, and that whole world or Tolkien and Middle Earth or Narnia for, for Lewis fans. Um, and so through the imagination, these works of art prompt us, prompt us to embark on a quest to find the object of our longing. And remember, the object of our longing is beauty. And that's what, and the source of beauty is Christ. Now, the reason why I call it heroic escape, it actually comes from Tolkien. Uh, C.S. Tolkien wrote, wrote a really important essay called On Fairy Stories. And in there, he says that any good story, he, he's talking about fairy stories, but I think this is true of any good story. Um, they do three things for us. They, they provide consolation, recovery, um, and escape. And he says, escape in times, to escape into these secondary worlds is actually heroic because in those secondary, secondary worlds of fiction, we find refreshment, we find consolation, and then we kind of enter back into the primary world with sort of fresh eyes. And so he calls it heroic because, you know, the world's tough enough. And so sometimes we need that kind of escape. And so I guess the proposal here is that, is the aesthetic currency of the imagination Story, poetry, music, symbol, and images are some of the key tools that God can use to reawaken this longing for uh, God, for himself, okay? So that's the way of the imagination. The way of reason um, is kind of a well-walked plank. Um, and this is, you know, I talk a lot to educators. I was talking last week um, to a group of faculty. And, you know, I just said to them, one of the cool things that you have, it doesn't matter what you teach. If, if the doctrine of creation is true, that means that everything distinct from God is created by God. And what that means is that every truth that we discover, every little bit of knowledge we obtain, somehow connects back and illuminates the divine. 
And so as educators, I was telling them, it doesn't matter if you teach geometry or engineering or English or philosophy or science or whatever, you are awakening their longing for truth that sets them on a journey if faithfully followed leads to the source of truth, which is Christ. And so when we give arguments, we're actually awakening these rational faculties. And back to that screw tape letter, the first, the first one in Lewis's screw tape letter, um, you know, the, the senior devil to the junior devil fix their minds on the stream of central experience. But then the next line, he says this, if you awaken the rational faculties, they'll learn that the, the enemy will learn that they can win on their own grounds. And so keep them from, from pertaining to universal matters. And so the point is, as we argue, as we give reasons, we actually awaken this God-given faculty to know. As Aristotle famously put in the metaphysics, he says, all people desire to know. This is how God has made us. And so we can awaken that longing for God by setting them on the journey to discover truth. All right, lastly, um, the way of morality. Call this the, um, the longing for happiness and the dialectic of desire. So here, um, in addition to, to the imagination and reason, uh, you know, we have a conscience, right? And if you ask anybody, what is it that you want most deeply? The answer will be almost invariably, I just want to be, and I know you can fill in the blank because we all have done it. It's the word happy, right? We just want to be happy. Blaise Pascal says, this is, the, this is the deep longing of every human heart. Even the person who hangs himself longs, thinks that that will make him happy. You know, I mean, so everybody wants to be happy. Now, I think that it rings true because we're, we're obsessed in our culture with happiness, right? We pursue it with this sense of fervency and urgency. Um, if only I had that experience, or if only I had that job, or if only I had that relationship, or if only I had this home or paid off these bills, you know, and that should tip us off to the fact um, that something's gone amiss. So here's something that's interesting to note. All of us long for happiness, yet it remains elusive. Okay, so those are two things to press uh, in our discussions, and I think they're instructive. You know, um, the fact that we long for it helps us understand that we've lost it, right? We only long for things that we don't have. And I love, again, Blaise Pascal, this, this um, 17th century philosopher, he said something in the Ponces that I find so provocative. He said, deep within the human heart, he actually said it this way, there's a trace of a, of a, of a, of a memory of a memory when, it, when man was truly happy, capital M, capital H. Deep within the human heart, there's this trace of a, a whiff of a time when everything was as it ought to be. And that trip, that whiff of a trace of a memory, we can awaken that but just simply asking questions about happiness. What is the thing that you, what is the good that you long for? I want to be happy. Well, tell me about that. How's that going for you? And then we, we follow there. And so again, um, I'm going quick, but I just want to at least kind of whet your appetite here. So let's go back to this little wander and return thing. So if the first step, at least on my proposal, is that we would join with God and each other to awaken longing, the second step then toward re-enchantment is what I want to call returning to reality. And here I mean two things very specifically. I don't, I don't mean things like, you know, a Christian nation or the political right or the political left or anything like that. And remember, culture's upstream from politics. And so what am I after? Well, very specifically two things. Number one, when I say returning to reality, it's a claim for us that we as believers would begin to see and delight in Jesus, I'm sorry, in the world the way Jesus does. And then number two, we would invite others to see and delight in the world the way Jesus does, okay? That's all I mean. So let me just give you an example. This is um, Dallas Willard. This, you know, if you haven't read The Divine Conspiracy, read chapter three. It's worth the whole price of the book. 
This quote is from chapter three. Um, but notice what he says. It's kind of challenging, actually. Jesus's good news about the kingdom can be an effective guide for our lives only if we share his view of the world in which we live. To his eyes, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world. It's a world filled with a glorious reality. It's a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good because of God and because God is always in it. He says, until our thoughts, this is really challenging, until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and every glorious event with his presence, the word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. These are challenging words. So in seeing the world as Jesus does, we see the world in its proper light, as enchanted, as mysterious, as beautiful, as to use the proper word, sacred, as gift, okay? Um, and then of course we learn in doing that to invite others to do the same. And we could talk about that. I'd love to talk about that. Um, there's a lot to say there. Um, and uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep going. There's more I can say. Uh, okay, because there's, yeah, a lot I wanna say here. All right, so there's the proposal. Wander and return. You can kind of at least see kind of where it is. Now, let me, um, let me say a few things here and then I wanna give you some, I wanna turn practical for a minute and then we'll, and then we'll have some question time for questions. Um, Disenchantment has changed everything, right? We, um, if you go back 500 years ago, um, there were significant barriers to unbelief. I hear that, right? Disbelieving in God was really difficult 500 years ago. Today, it's the opposite. In a disenchanted world, there's significant barriers to belief, okay? So it makes unbelief possible, disenchantment, and it makes belief more difficult for those of us who believe. We're, we're plagued with doubts. And so we live in these sort of cross pressures where we're plagued with doubts and the non-believer is sort of haunted by this kind of transcendence that they're told doesn't exist, but yet they long for it. So in a disenchanted world, we have at least two basic kinds of objections here. One would be this, this man here, this is Luke Ferry. He's a philosopher. He wrote a book called um, A Brief History of Thought. And Luke Ferry wants Christianity to be true. He just doesn't think it's reasonable. He actually says, I've got a quote here, uh, if I can find it. He says, I find the Christian proposition infinitely more tempting, except for the fact that I don't believe it. But were it true, I would certainly be a taker. He just thinks the problem of evil, the horrendous evil in the world uh, makes belief in God irrational. And, and the evidence, he thinks it goes the other way. So you have some in culture that want Christianity. They just don't think it's reasonable. You have others in culture. This is Thomas Nagel. He's another important philosopher, teaches at, uh, in New York. Um, he wrote a book in 1996 called The Last Word. And in there, he said this. He says, I'm really bothered by the fact that many of my colleagues are some of the smartest people I know, and they're Christians. He says, I don't want to believe in God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And then he actually says the next paragraph, he says, I have a cosmic authority issue. And I'm like, yeah, bro, we get it. It's called sin, right? We all have that. But the point is, he thinks that Christianity is reasonable, but he doesn't want it, okay? So we have two different objections here that we need to begin as cultural apologists to address. I think for years, we spent all this time addressing the, the, the charge that Christianity is irrational, and rightly so, given the enlightenment, that was kind of the main charge. But today we've got a whole host of other charges that Christians are hypocrites, the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster, uh, you know, the, the Christian ethic is unlovely and repressive and racist and on and on and on and on, you can go. And so we've got to address both. And so the question is, well, what is this going to take? How can, we, how can we join with God and each other to re-enchant the world? Well, 
what many theologians are saying, and I'm, tr I'm tapping in that, into that now in apologetics, is that um, actually, I'm thinking of like Jamie K. Smith in his book, um, You Are What You Love, he says this, he says, the only Christianities that will survive in the 21st century are those that re-enchant themselves. Or Hans Borsma, another theologian says, um, we must learn to see the world uh, through sacramental eyes, right? What, and to put it in the language I've been using, we must begin to see and delight in the world the way that Jesus does. And so I think this is our way forward. Now, let me just, let me just pivot. Uh, I need to do this quickly. Uh, I'm just going to do this sort of quickly because I want to have more time for um, questions. Let me just pivot to a few practical things. Um, I want us to begin to think about ministry differently. Uh, and this is from a good friend of mine, Greg Ganzel, also former crew staff, teaches at Talbot. But, and he's thought deeply about ministry as well. And um, typically as campus ministers, you know, my context with crew. Every year, and Melissa, you can probably, you know, relate to this when you were on the campus as well. We'd kind of get that campus map out. We'd lay it out on the table and say, how are we going to get to every point on this map, right? Length and width, every point on the map with the gospel. And this is ministry in two dimensions. But I've been convinced through Greg and others that, th that we've got to expand our view of ministry to four dimensions. So we don't just want to get to every place on the map, right? Length and width. We want to go deep into the ideational structures and the emotional response patterns and the, emo the social imaginaries, as Charles Taylor, Taylor says, but, but the, the lived stories within every part on that map, right? So we want to drill deep. That's the third dimension. And then the fourth dimension has to do with time. Typically, as evangelicals, we tend to have a fairly short time, you know, maybe window of like five years max, where, you know, and we have metrics like gospel presentations and baptisms. And of course, all these are really important metrics. But who's doing the thinking for the next generation? You know, who's thinking 50 years out, 100 years out if Christ doesn't come back? Who's thinking about what will the state of the gospel be then if we don't consider what we're doing now? And so I guess... Um, my encouragement is that we begin to think about ministry in a different way, that we add depth and time to it. Um, briefly, I want to give you some metaphors, and then I'm going to skip some, I, I'm going to skip some stuff and give you some further reading. All right, so instead of the broken cord, remember last two weeks ago, we talked about how, um, what it feels like to live in a disenchanted age. One of the ideas was we live in an age of the broken cord where the, the sacred order and the, the natural order are severed. Well, instead of the, the, the broken uh, cord, let me suggest the metaphor of the sacred tapestry. This is a book. This is one of the books I'm going to recommend by Hans Borsma. But the idea here is that there's this very tight connection between earth and heaven. Here you have this chain from humans to angels, you know, uh, that, 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 that the, the divine space and the human space are actually connected. And of course, you see this in scripture from Genesis to Revelation as well. Um, but we begin to think of, I'll just give you a quote from Borsma, the entire cosmos is meant to serve as a sacrament, a material gift from God, and through which we enter into the joy of his heavenly presence. Okay, so instead of a broken cord, think of the world as a sacred tapestry. Remember I said that it feels like a dungeon, right? That we live in this imminent frame. This is from Charles Taylor, that we have the felt absence of God. And so let me give you a different metaphor to live by as we begin to re-enchant ourselves. I would say instead of a dungeon, begin to think of this world as a theater of divine glory. This is one of my favorite quotes from Calvin's Institutes. He says this um, about the heavens and the earth. He says, he says, the heavens and the earth are a dazzling theater of God's glory. 
everywhere you look. And so we, we um, find ourselves in this divine drama uh, in, in this beautiful place. And I'd love to talk here if we had time about this deep connection between pleasure and meaning because we're in this, we're in this stage and everything in the world is now marked with this relationship of love. And so the, the predominant emotion is not dread, the dread of a dungeon, but it's joy, the joy of sharing and creaturely response to the gift of the divine lover. Finally, instead of a shopping mall, this was a Jamie K. Smith's, you know, liturgy idea that we're consumers, uh, I would just replace that with the idea of the home. And again, the home, the ideal home, shalom, as the Hebrew word would put it, the place where we experience the world as it ought to be. Okay, so there's three uh, metaphors to live by. I'm going to skip some practical stuff. See, so you, you just missed it. Um, and I can come back to that. Maybe I'll put it into our last uh next week because we're going to talk about story and I think that um, I can I can bring it back in there it'll be helpful to give you some practical things but if um, since writing the book uh, I've really been wanting to press into this idea of how do we see and delight in the world the way Jesus does in fact that's my two next books uh, one will be on how we as believers see and delight in the world the way Jesus does and then I'm currently writing one how do we invite others to see and delight in the world so I'm writing an evangelistic book that's cultural apologetics trying to be cheeky and funny and rigorous and, you know, all that at the same time. It's not always easy. Um, but let me give you some of the things that have been helpful to me as, as I close here. Um, this book by Hans Borsma is really helpful called Heavenly Participation. So Borsma is a Protestant uh, reformed guy. Uh, this next one, Gerald, Gerald McDermott, uh, Everyday Glory. He's an Anglican theologian. And again, very good uh, helping, you know, the, the revelation of God in all of reality. I love this little booklet. You can read this in a, just one sitting by Julie Canlis called A Theology of the Ordinary. It helps us to just see in the everyday to see uh, the giftedness of everything. And then um, this author, Paul Tyson, is becoming one of my favorites. This book is called Defragmenting Modernity, but I just finished one a couple of weeks ago called Seven Brief Lessons on Magic that I would highly, highly recommend as well. And so Paul Tyson, he's got three books. His first one's called Returning to Reality. Um, I'd recommend any of those as well. He's a theologian out of Australia that I think is helping us to see the world again with sacramental eyes. And then finally, self-promotion. I did a whole podcast series um, on this question of rediscovering the sacramental image. And so you can go to our webs one of, a website called twotasksinstitute.org or you can just go to iTunes or Spotify and type in the Udo podcast. And then season four, we've got 12 episodes um, kind of exploring this question of re-enchantment and, and how do we, you know, learn to see the world the way that God, uh, that Jesus does. And so, okay, uh, that's, that's, that's it. I will stop and we can have a discussion. Great. And I actually am just um, putting that uh, link in the, the chat for folks that to the two tasks Institute. I was listening to uh, to your podcast, Paul, um, over Christmas break. So I would definitely recommend that. And all of the um, resources actually that you mentioned, I'll go ahead and put in an email um, as a follow up to this, awesome. along again with that book code. And so Great. don't worry about trying to capture all of that right now. We'll make sure that you guys get that um, that later. But uh, thanks. That was, yeah, a lot to take in there that I think is really helpful. There's there's so much to unpack. I've gotten a few good questions and want to encourage um, if you have any others, please go ahead and uh, direct message those to me. But um, one, I think that's that's helpful maybe to just explain a little bit um, as you did uh, the uh, the wander and return 
Um, one of the things you talked about in returning to reality uh, involved delighting. You said seeing and delighting in the world as Jesus does. Um, one of the questions was asked, uh, why that way opposed to sort of seeing and delighting in Jesus himself? So why about the world as opposed to maybe about, about God himself? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually a really good question. Um, I think, I mean, I, obviously we want to continue to grow. You know, Jesus is ultimately the lover of our souls, our highest good, that which, we, which we've been created for. Um, but what, I'm, what I have in mind in terms of this, um, so what, what we're after is how do we make Christianity reasonable and desirable? How do we make it plausible and desirable? And so I think what I'm thinking about is it, it all depends on what we see, you know? And we have um, indirectly control over what we see by how we understand the world around us. And so if we want to see Jesus clearly, I, need, we, I think part of that answer is that we need to begin to see and delight in the world that he has made. And so, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I want to think about that some more because uh, I don't want the reader, like anybody reading that book or hearing what I'm saying, thinking that that's not like the most important thing. But I think in terms of making Christianity reasonable and plausible, which is what I'm after, um, I think it's helping people see this world as the, the created reality that it is from God. And in doing that, that is the means in which we will come to see Jesus as our highest good and our greatest need and the lover of our soul. And so it's kind of like an instrumental means to get to the most beautiful thing in the world, which is Jesus himself. So yeah, and, and part of this is also um, pushing back on it's a great question. I'm really appreciate it because I'm, I'm actually thinking about like, you know, that that's actually, I don't want to miss that. Um, but I think I'm also pushing back in like the sacred secular split split that, and a kind of Christian Gnosticism that's so present in our church where we value the life of the spirit, but we devalue the things of this world, the material, the embodiment of our being, you know, there's, a, we have a very weak theology of the body and a very weak theology of place and a very weak theology um, of, the, of beauty. And so part of what I'm doing is trying to correct that, uh, I think that miss. Um, and so that's also why I think, at least for me, I, I focused on that. But yeah, you're right. Ultimately, this is so that people will remember, we're, this is the penultimate question. How do we um, have show that the gospel is true and beautiful and satisfying? The ultimate question, which is why I love your question, is what do you make of Jesus Christ? That's the ultimate question. And this is the way to get there, or at least one way. Great question. Yeah, that's good. I was thinking even just in terms of your your model or the um, the, the metaphors. Uh, it, it's sort of if we're if people are in a sense trapped in this imminent frame, how yeah. do we even get to the transcendence? Um, and, and maybe it's starting with what they can see. That sensate mm -hmm. uh, kind of that that piece yeah. um, makes sense. That's good. It's really helpful. Um, and maybe this is what you skipped over and you're planning to come back to, but um, but even uh, I, I recall from, from reading your book that you had some really good questions um, that you go into uh, for people who are, are, are kind of maybe moving along that path of re-enchantment. Um, is that something that you're gonna talk about next week? But I, or I think just like, what what can we as, as Christians, how, how can we awaken uh, those, you know, ideas of desire? Can we, um, yeah, help people kind of move along in that process. How can, how can we help people to awaken these longings? Yeah, or I, I think I remember that you have some questions that you would say you might ask to people to sort of move along in that process of re or depending where they're at. Mm -hmm. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. In the last chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's there, I give kind of some diagnostic questions, um, you know, like, um, Blaise Pascal, sorry, I keep quoting these people. They've just been so helpful to me, but this thinker, he said, there's like three basic kinds of people in the world. There's, there's the found that's believers who are both happy and reasonable. They're happy because they found the uh, perfect happiness is amounts to union with God. And they're reasonable because they've, they've sought that truth. And then there's the seeker who's uh, unhappy but reasonable because they're seeking that truth. And then there's the non-seeker who's both unhappy and unreasonable. And so I kind of use those three kinds of people and give some diagnostic questions at the end of the book for how, depending on what kind of person you're engaging, uh, the questions that we can ask to sort of awaken and elicit and, and uh, do things. I don't have the book with me, so I don't remember what they are, but um, <laughs> That's what, yeah. Sorry, I put you on the spot right there. You know what? I have a screen of your, of that um, put it up page there. because I thought it was helpful. Uh, and just personally, I wanted to, to, keep, to keep hold of it. Um, I think non-seeker, you were, you're asking, what do you want to awaken longings? Um, I remember for the seeker, you asked, what do you believe? What story will you live? Uh, what do you make of Jesus? Um, and then maybe for the found, what does faithfulness look like for me? So I, I thought it was really, it was a helpful part of just some of the, the practical um, stuff that you were talking about uh, to just sort of have some of those diagnostic questions as we are sort of doing this work of, of understanding the people that we're interacting with and, and maybe where they're at. That's good. Thank um, you. <laughs> nah, I can send that along to you. <laughs> Put you right on the spot. Um, another question that had come in uh, uh, actually related back to, to the idea, I think, of, of home and rest um, that you were talking about at the beginning. So uh, how might this help us maybe to understand how to really rest in Christ, to appreciate that we have rest in Christ, um, maybe even so that we we aren't we aren't wandering, you know, looking for for more. How would you talk about that? That's a great question. Um, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm uh, reflecting a lot on rest, actually. Um, you know, because well, I, I guess just um, autobiographically like many people in their 20s and 30s, I think I was striving to find my significance in what I do. And then, you know, you begin to achieve that. And for whatever reason, you turn the corner toward thinking about, you know, significance and giving back. And, and for me, it's been this turning the corner, like, wait a minute, <laughs> uh, I've seen success, but that doesn't make me happy. So wait a minute, I tell everybody it's found in Jesus. And so really re-examining re my own heart um, and really been, been, uh, even, you know, the last year or two, I've, I've been experiencing this kind of working from this posture of rest, which has been really super renewing. Um, so I guess two things. Um, I'm very mindful of J uh, Calvin's claim, as Tim Keller talks about in his book on counterfeit gods, that our hearts are idle factories. Um, and so constantly monitoring the state of our hearts is super important. And again, these are, I mean, you guys are readers, you guys are engaged in a good community, but like the, the work of Jamie K. A. Smith on cultural liturgies and just liturgy in general is so helpful. Um, in, in the idea that, you know, our, our habits matter. And he's getting this from Augustine, he's getting it from Aristotle. It's, these are, this is ancient wisdom. Um, and so I have found that having these routines of devotions and prayer and walking and journaling for me um, have been formative uh, in a way that I, I reposture and re, re, root out daily those idols that creep up. Um, and then just for me, um, learning to look with fresh eyes again, like go, like I, I, you know, we have some land here in Florida, which is beautiful because it's beautiful down here and like walking and just looking at trees 
not because it's weird or you worship nature, but like this is all created by God and for, for beauty and, and we're meant to be nourished on the, be the beautiful and the good and the true. And so for me, it's like learning to, to notice. And so just to give you one last example, um, for my kids, you know, they're a little older now and they're on to me, but when they're younger, especially, we would uh, around the dinner table, one of the common questions I would ask is, is how have you seen the finger of God, fingerprint of God in your life today? And when they're young, it'd be like, oh, I had fun in gym class, or I don't have any homework, you know, just like silly things. And you're like, ah, oh, they're missing it. But like the, the hope was, as we asked this over and over again, they might at one day begin to ask, God, how is it that I see your fingerprint of God in my life today? And, oh, wait, you're fully active every day. And so we've had more, we've had deeper conversations now that they're in high school and college around that very same question. And so just learning to, to actively, and that, that was actually some of the, um, the practical stuff I took out. <laughs> so I'll bring it back, I promise, next time. But practically, intentionally looking for God to be active in your life and then, and then in the lives of those around you. Those things have all helped. That's good. That's good. Well, maybe uh, uh, so we can take another question here. Um, I think you mentioned a couple of times, and I think especially relevant for today, uh, you talked about the idea of politics being downstream from culture. Um, do you get any pushback on that idea? But um, yeah, how is how does that look, and and how would you maybe address um, how well you're, you're trying to address uh, influences all of these kinds of things? Yeah, <clears throat> great question. Um, I'll, I'll just say that I am I am trying to figure out the downstream part with politics. Like I think all of us, it's very confusing right now. Um, but I do think that culture is upstream from that. And so in many ways, the fragmentation and the discord and the basic general chaos is not surprising because it's the kind of culturally, it's the world we live in. So um, did we talk about, J I think we talked about James Davidson Hunter last time and his book to change the world. Did, we, did I mention that? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think um, he's right. Just to repeat what I probably said then about like, you know, the culture shaping institutions of the world really get to define reality for us. Um, and of course, city or politics is part of that good. So in some sense, po the political realm is also a culture shaping institution. Think of law, think of, um, I mean, just government in general. And so I, I think this is one of the areas. So I have, I have a couple misses in my book. This is one that I haven't addressed that I'd really like to do some thinking on um, the good and the city. And it's the kind of things you guys are working on with the faith and work Chicago stuff. Um, but with, and politics would be in the same thing. So I know that it's connected. Um, what does that mean? What does faithfulness to Christ look like? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Uh, we need, I need each, I need you. We need to figure that out together. So I have, so there's my punt to kind of a lame answer, but I'm in process with that one. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, that's a, a fair word. And uh, as we as we all continue this journey of um, <clears throat> understanding how to uh, how to influence uh, not only the culture at large, sort of that global piece, but, but also then locally in our own um, lives and, and the sphere of, of influence that we have. Um, I think that is what we want to continue to push us to think about together so that we're not dichotomizing, um, you know, the, the sacred and the secular, secular, we're not dichotomizing sort of the local or the individual and the global um, God's work in the, you know, um, in the world and uh, in heavenly. So all of those pieces, I think we continue to try to understand how they integrate and, and what that means for our lives as 
as individual believers and, and for the church. So thank you for, yeah, helping us to continue to, to drill into this call and um, just appreciate uh, these different metaphors and um, some of the practical ways that you're helping us think about uh, and maybe get a, a grasp on some of what's going on in the culture. Uh, our time is at the end. So thank you so much, um, everybody, for tuning in today. Again, I know it's uh, kind of a big day. And, there's a lot to tune into, so thanks for joining us in this lunch hour. Um, we have one more week on this topic, and uh, I am looking forward to, as Paul uh, alluded, going to talk some about story um, and imagination, and uh, even that role in in sort of um, how we can think about reenchanting the world, how we can think about um, making. Uh, helping people see the beauty, the goodness, and the truth of, of Jesus and the gospel. So we hope that you'll join us for our last week. Um, the recording from today's will be up later on our website, as well as the, the last two weeks are, are up there as well. Um, I want to remind you that you can purchase uh, Paul's book for 40% off the retail price. Um, and that is just for this month. So just to note that, that that's just that code is good for January. Um, we'll keep sharing that with you in follow-up materials and whatnot. But uh, thank you again so much for being with us. Thank you, Paul. Uh, appreciate you and, and good to see everybody. We'll hopefully see you next Wednesday. Blessings, everyone. Bye-bye.